0: collapse would be so disastrous. It would be so disastrous. And so what we really need to somehow achieve is a major bend in the way that our system operates. And again, the only way that that can really be achieved is is, is through policy changes and legal changes through the structures that exist such that we can radically change the system using the system itself. And I, I really strongly believe that that can happen. I don't necessarily believe that it will happen without violence. I think that probably the longer this takes to
1: solve, the more likely there is to be violence. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant Based News podcast. I'm joined today by a very familiar face, environmentalist, scientist and educator. It's Matthew Shribman. Last time Matthew was on the podcast, we talked about environmentalism and ways in which we can communicate scientific facts about the current state of our planet and the nature and climate crisis. As an educator and science communicator, Matthew has made significant strides in educating people on the importance of action and solutions. Today, we're sitting down to discuss more about his incredible journey, his mission, and his continued work in education through his platform, Aim High Earth. We will delve deeper into the role of science, education, and communication in mobilizing people into taking action. This episode, as with all conversations with Matthew, have meandered into all kinds of interesting depths. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. As always, if you do like it, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast again, Matthew. What a pleasure to finally meet you in person and sit down with you. Thanks for having me back and in real life. Yes, IRL. I I love real life. (laughs) well let's get some more on that story now with matthew shribman chief scientist at aim high earth an organization that offers training and education on climate issues uh, great to see you, matthew this evening thanks for your time so a new labor government in australia wanting to turn around australia's reputation when it comes
0: to uh, the climate are you hopeful <sighs> so well first maybe it's good for me to start with some some context on 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 my feelings around this at the moment. So life on Earth at the moment is is dying at an astounding rate. We've lost 6 in 10 insects in the UK in just 20 years. The oceans are emptying out. The big fish are down 90% over the last century or so. Animals with spines are down around 70%. 7 in 10 of all animals with spines down on, on the entire of the planet life on our planet is being obliterated and its obliteration is increasingly likely to take us with it yet there's still this suggestion that we should be saying well done for these kinds of performances which by all means uh, it's certainly moving in the right direction i really don't want to say that but this isn't progress, because of course this is progress, but we're still at the stage where we're looking at, we're at a performance like the, this this new announcement, which is ultimately degrade in that, yes, there's some renewables mixed in there, but we, we cannot keep, keep running with coal and fossil fuels. We are into the end game now. We're very likely to lose everything.
1: So, before we get started, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Uh, you've been travelling and doing all kinds of different things. You're in Portugal and you've been you've been doing all sorts of cool stuff recently. So, Ooh, what have you been so, up to? Well, my, my, my partner is, uh,
0: she's kind of Portuguese-Brazilian. And so her, her family got quite jealous that we spent the whole of the pandemic with my family. So, we, we've basically been living for like half a year out, out in South America, which has been really cool. But uh, the thing that always sticks in my mind, that my mind always goes to when people ask me about South America... Is we went to this really cool cave. Can I tell you about the cave or are we yeah, too early no, on the podcast? Yeah, no, go for it. It had these like boreholes in the ceiling where it looked like miners had kind of put up pillars to support the ceiling. And then a few of them had like bats hanging from the middle of them. Anyway, the, the guide that we were with told us that that basically these bats kind of secrete, like secrete in their sweat and their urine and things like that, kind of ammoniary stuff wow. that like eats away at the rock. And so these deep boreholes are like tunneled in by the bats, just sweating and and so on over hundreds of years. And so these like really deep ones have these like... Centuries of sweat. Prestigious bats that have like lived in the same spot for the same family, just ongoing for ages. Anyway, there were some cool spiders and things. We, We don't need to talk about the cave. No,
1: I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated about how the natural world creates these Impressions are on the on the landscape, you know, where animals and and plants and people often look for these sort of mysterious and magical and mythical reasons why these things occur, but actually sometimes the most obvious thing is the reason that they exist, and there's there's lots of examples of strange phenomenon out in the natural world that animals and creatures create. But you may think it's some kind of like mythical, magical, maybe aliens or something, but it actually turns out it's animals or insects or bats.
0: Yeah, like the the place where they thought they'd found like an underwater city, like an Atlantis. And then it turned out that all these pillars were just like kind of uh, little animals under, under the water,
1: like forming yeah. these. All that yeah. fish that, that goes under the ocean and spends hours making beautiful patterns in circles for their mate. And people thought that they were sort of some kind of underground aliens, but it was actually a fish spending all this time making this beautiful circular pattern to attract a mate. And then they get shells and they lay the shells all on this beautiful circle. But because people can't see, and this taps into sort of my work and what we do at PBN about trying to educate people about animals, people cannot understand how animals have such high levels of intelligence and that they would take the time to do something so intricate And I find that fascinating because I think that that's the problem with the way people view animals. They don't really see them as individuals with their own inner worlds. And that's what I love about learning about the natural world. And, you know, listening to some of your stories about the spiders and the wind and all that. You know, it's such an incredible planet out there with so much to discover, so much that's undiscovered.
0: Ever wondered how spiders fly? That's right. Most of them can fly some of them well over a thousand kilometers. Spiders really have very little to say for themselves about it, and yet, loads of them have been found arrogantly floating like four kilometers up in the sky. Since spiders don't necessarily have our best interests at heart, it'd be good to know what's going on, right? A Couple hundred years ago, our boy Darwin noticed that there were spiders boarding his ship, the Beagle, as it floated in the Atlantic. He called them aeronaut spiders on aerial excursions, which is such a beautiful way to think about it, isn't it? I actually quite like spiders, even though one of them bit me once and gave me hallucinations and I was crying and I forgot who I was and I swore to have my revenge, which I'll never have. So there's this idea that spiders can fire silk out of their bums in the shape of a kind of parachute, which catches the wind and carries them up into the air. It sounds good, but it doesn't actually make that much sense because even with upward winds, Occasionally, there are always going to be downward winds. And also, the spiders are still, like, heavier than the air, right? This isn't going to be an explanation for how they can get over 1,500 kilometers off the coast. The secret that the curious Charles Darwin didn't know is to do with electricity. So you know how the Earth is slightly negatively charged and the sky is slightly positively charged? Well, when these charges get really strong, we get lightning, right? Sparks of electricity that jump to correct the charge difference. Speaking of lightning, there's that place at the mouth of the Catatumbo River where lightning strikes an average of over 1,000 times a day. So much of the world's nitrous oxide is made there. So spiders are totally on top of this and they can measure the charge difference of the earth and the sky with the hairs on their legs.
1: Tell me a little bit about when you first started feeling what you feel now about the world, you know, the natural world. Explain to me the feelings and the sort of like, I guess the joy that you started when you were quite young, I imagine, learning about Earth and everything that lives on it.
0: Okay, so well, w- when you were talking before, it was really making me think of this tweet that I screenshotted just before, so I'm going to just, can I read it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's this person called Ant-Man Dan who said, For me, the festering issue is how our collective imaginary has been captured by a small group of techno-capitalists. We yearn for driverless cars, yet fail to imagine what a world without cars might look like we starve our artists while we build machines to create art. And what you were saying really made me think of that because we're kind of in this situation where like our, our imagination of of, of what, what we should want has been like completely captured into this this situation where everyone's dreaming of outer space. And yet the thing that my friends and I keep talking about is like, yeah, sure, outer space is kind of cool in the abstract, but there's so much interesting stuff on earth that we still have no idea about. Like this is where the real adventure is is to be had. And of course- a lot of people know that we, um, you know, we know more about the surface of Venus than we do about the bottom of the sea. Like there, there's still so many incredible frontiers on the on the planet and stuff that we don't know about. But anyway, I, I, I don't I don't really know where it, where it began. I, I kind of I had a really strong sense when I was a child that I was kind of, or oh, sorry, looking back on my childhood, that I kind of learned about nature first because mm-hmm. I, I I grew up in in on like an old farm. Um, And my my family are all, my mum's family are all farmers. And then after that, I went to the city. And so after that, I learned about the kind of abstraction of like human culture and society. And that was like the weird thing that I learned about after nature. And so for me, everything has always made sense through nature. And I (laughs) I find human society is quite kind of baffling and weird. But sorry, this also made me think of, did you see that Google employee recently who was uh, given time off? Because they... Where they were speaking to this AI. That's the Lambda machine. Lambda, exactly. The, and, and I read through the entire conversation because I was really, really curious about how it went. And the thing that really struck me is that whether whether Lambda is, is, is sentient or not, I, I, I'm i not kind of putting, putting a view on that uh, right now, but it, it seems that Lambda has picked up in the way that it communicates in the way that it seems to think all of these abstractions of like, human society. Almost every single story it told had a male main character, for example. That's one of our most kind of insidious biases that persists through generations. Why, why is that? And also, I, I felt like the way that Lambda was seemed to be thinking, it, it felt very kind of human instead of very natural. And for me, that was weirdly foreign, because I think of an AI as like, OK, this is like maybe a new intelligence, if it ever got to that stage, that, that you know, might, might learn about the world anew in the same way that a newborn lizard might explore the world. And so you kind of expect those same patterns of like curiosity and and seeking connection and collaboration and, and, and
1: these things that, that... An emergent consciousness. An emergent, Yeah. It's such a fascinating conversation. And one of the things on our list of, of discussions was consciousness, it's something that I'm like fascinated by the nature of it. We, we still don't really know what consciousness is. We don't fully understand what sentience is. And I've said to people who have questioned this uh, artificial intelligence, whether it's sentient or not, or self aware or not, if we don't know what sentience is and we cannot define it, how can we know whether a machine is sentient or not? Because As a biological machine, we as people, when we were born, our brains are a sort of neural connection of uh, cells that act as, a, as, as sort of recording mechanisms that through experiences build awareness and then it becomes a self-propagating system, our brain, and it's ever-evolving. It's sort of plastic as well, right? Mm. And if we could create a machine that could, be, could mimic these sort of plastic connections with neurons, surely it is possible that we could create some level of consciousness or self-awareness. But the problem is we can't define it yet. It's undefinable. That being said, I had this theory that it would emerge out of something like um, a computer game where you have these advanced computer games that use machine learning, where they have all these characters that interact with each other in these kind of evolved ways. And can you imagine imagine sometime in the future where somebody's playing a computer game and one of the characters starts to interact with you and it becomes very self-aware, it doesn't really understand how or why it's there. I think there's been some science fiction books written about this, but... I think that the possibility of this type of technology you know it is there but it's also quite scary but going back to like the original point about consciousness and like people's inability to to recognize it we have animals and creatures all around us that are clearly sentient clearly self-aware and clearly conscious and intelligent but we treat them like objects we treat them as if they are kind of meaningless you know things to chop up into pieces and stuff and use in whatever ways we want and we also have a, a beautiful natural world filled with animals that we don't necessarily eat but we have no regard for them at all and i'm just really fascinated as to why you think humanity puts such little value on something like sentience and consciousness because it's so precious it's such an incredible side effect of evolution perhaps i don't know we're looking for it in our technology forgetting that the world is filled with it we seem to care nothing about we care very little about all this out there in the world this beautiful real sentience but then at home In our labs and in our science spaces, we are obsessing over technology, you know, awakening. Does that make sense? I know that's a really long question.
0: No, I thought it was really beautiful. (laughs) That was why I was typing a little bit of what you set out. And I knew that I was maybe getting typing keys on the recording. But Yeah. Looking in our technology for, for for consciousness and forgetting that it's all around. I think that was such a beautiful point to make. I love these conversations with you because they fire off so many thoughts, mm-hmm. but it means that um, my brain's going in lots of different directions. Go so for I'm going to try and consolidate. Uh, go for it. Yeah. First of all, I, I don't find it. Um, well, I, this is why I find the the Philip Pullman books, you know, the Northern Lights series. For I, I I find that so beautiful because for me it feels like such a perfect illustration of. The human tendency to try and repress these, like the, these powers of uh, of consciousness, and, the, and this thing that kind of underpins the whole the whole of the the way that we understand the universe. Um, and so clearly, it's something that is very inherent in human society, and it's very very strange. Uh, what, why why is that? But you know, you ask about why is it that we treat uh, all these animals that, that, that you know a child can see that that, that, they're, that they're conscious. Um, and why, why do we treat them so badly? I mean, we only have to look at colonialism and racism and all these justifications that we used against people of our own species, where where we, you know, subjugated people to, to terrible things and just made up excuses in our mind of like, oh, you know, th- these are different people or they're, or they're lesser in some way. And, and it's just easy for us to do the same with, with animals. So I think it, it says a lot about our ability to sustain just cognitive dissonance if it's just something that, that feels kind of convenient for us. But other, other things that I was, I was thinking about based on what you said, firstly, computer games. I love computer games. I'm really into like indie games like Braid and Fars and things like that. But I, I also love that the computer game world has so much kind of intelligence and creativity in it. And I find it so interesting how so many like cutting edge technologies emerge from, from computer games. So I agree with you. I wouldn't be surprised if that's one of the first places where uh, a seemingly conscious AI seems to, seems to turn up. And then another thing I wanted to reply to, sorry, this is a bit bitty, but lots of different things you said, was about, you know, if we can create some kind of interconnecting system that is, is plastic and able to communicate with itself and, and and so on, then surely that that will become consciousness. And that made me just think of uh, fungal networks and underground. You know, that's another thing that we really, I, I don't think, fully appreciate the consciousness. The mycelial of. network. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the final thing I was going to say, uh, if I will have one more bit of reply, was about... Um, do you know Schrodinger's definition of life?
1: I know about his cat, but what's his definition of life?
0: Okay, so the, the thing that we all learn at school is the, the Mrs. Grand thing about life. You know, like if it moves, respires and... Mm-hmm. I missed that bit, but yeah, enlighten you? me. <laughs> oh, right. There's basically like I must a li- have
1: fallen asleep <laughs> in physics at that point. <laughs> There's like a list of characteristics
0: hmm. that supposedly make up life, but people end up arguing about it because it, it, is, it doesn't really hold You mean the definition
1: of what is living? What is living, right. yeah, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's this thing called Mrs. Gren, and it's like a list that contains movement, uh, sensitivity, oh, okay. blah, blah, blah. It's an acronym. Rather than an approval from a, a Mrs. Grand character, <laughs> but we, uh, but Schrödinger had this, had this really good definition of of, of life, which which for me uh, resonates a lot more, where he said that living things are systems that reduce their that the chaos inside themselves, so they are they're systems that are able to just of their own accord retain order within and and continually kind of fix and repair oneself and i i think once you take that as a definition of life it starts to become a lot more broad and i've started to really think that anything that fits that definition is surely therefore capable of consciousness if it's if it's alive then surely it can somehow progress to a state of being
1: I guess we have to define what consciousness is, because being conscious in in a human form, in a human sort of uh, setting is to be awake, to be conscious of the space around you, to be taking in uh, stimuli and and responding accordingly. Consciousness is sort of this undescribed principle that exists behind our thoughts, that observes our thoughts and gives us personality and ego and identity, the sort of bucket in which everything sits in. And obviously, we've been talking about consciousness for thousands and thousands of years. People have, you know, through philosophy and, and science have tried to sort of capture it. And I often think of it a little bit like smoke. You try and grasp at it and you can't really get hold of it. And you mentioned Philip Pullman's um, Northern Lights. It's my most favorite series. I, I, When I first read that those books, I completely, I don't really, I struggle to read. I'm like you, dyslexic as well. And reading is a challenge but i picked up those books and i completely inhaled them because i was so immersed in his world that he created and i love the idea of consciousness dust as he talks about it is a sort of animating principle that that seeps into every power every every universe every multiverse that exists consciousness is there i i feel this is sort of my my feelings is consciousness is the universe and the universe is consciousness. It's almost like a. Are you into Star Trek at all? You ever watch any Star Trek? I haven't really watched Star Trek, okay. but I have the idea of it. <laughs> so in Star Trek, there is a there is a, a machine called the holodeck, the holographic deck, where you can go in and it's an empty space like we're sitting in now, and there's a hollow network. So, sorry, hollow uh, emitters that are all around the room, and they emit photonic energy. Photonic energy, when concentrated, behaves behaves a lot like solid matter. But you can bring anything to life. You can create anything, anything that feels solid and it uses force fields and photonic energy to make any object, including people and, and characters in a play or a, a game, or you could go swimming in an ocean or a lake, and it all seems real. I genuinely believe, in, in, just from my various experience, psychedelic experiences, that the, the universe in a way is sort of like a holographic universe, that consciousness is a sort of energy or a force or a power or a sort of power source of physical matter. And that consciousness dreams physical matter into reality. But you step into this sort of space of the universe where you exist as a human being and you come into reality. And through our thoughts and our connections with the world, we, we give cohesion to physical matter. So, for example, the old thing about if a tree falls in a, in a rainforest and uh, there's no one to hear it fall, does it make a noise? Does it make a sound? And the obvious answer to most people is, yes, of course it does. But if there's no ear to observe the sound wave, is there sound without a conscious observer and i believe the universe and ego consciousness exist in this sort of like interplay between conscious observer and reality and they are sort of always deeply inter- intertwined so when people say what is consciousness it's like it's not a thing it's almost a sort of framework in which we emerge out of in in our human form and i know i'm kind of going off in wild tangents but um again going bringing it back to animals you know we are animals Human beings are animals and and it's so fascinating to me how our species has evolved to a point where we've forgotten that and we've become so arrogant in our standing on this planet that we forget that we share this world with thousands and millions of other animals species and through our behavior we've kind of lost our connection to the natural world and again I feel so strongly that this is one of the reasons why we're seeing a total collapse of our biosphere, because we have severed the connection with, you might call it Gaia, you know, the Earth energy or the, the life energy of Earth. And we've built these concrete jungles and we've made all this technology, which we think makes us superior and we've broken the connection. How important do you think it is for us to sort of head in the other direction when it comes to us as people? Because, you know, spending time in nature and digging in the dirt and growing things, because I feel like we spend a lot of time on our phones and on our laptops. We spend a lot of time watching TV and traveling on trains and airplanes in these sterile environments. You know, do you feel like we're heading in a totally wrong direction as a species?
0: Yes. (laughs) Well, yes. It doesn't feel like we severed the connection. It just feels like it's kind of quite quite feeble but I really feel like it can be ignited if you communicate and you run things in the right way you know know, like Costa Rica they've been doing nature-based education for decades ever since the Figueres family started to become quite powerful in that in that country and you know their billboards have all these messages about the importance of nature on them and you speak to people there and they're like you know, that you can tell wow, that they're really amazing. connected with nature, and it, that that gives me a huge amount of hope as to what we can get back to.
1: It's almost like a respect they're giving, they're reminding people to respect nature.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and I, I, you you can see what happens there in terms of the way that the way that people exist. And obviously, there are still problems, but it it gives me a lot of hope as to where we could where we could get back to. But I wanted to I wanted to just check. I can't I can't remember when we were talking about consciousness last time. Did we talk about the kind of physical? basis for it i can't remember i don't, no, I don't think so we okay. talked
1: about we, we, we touched r- roughly on like viruses and life and i was you know when we were talking earlier about the connection between life and non-life you know we have this relationship with viruses which people see as living things but they're not we touched briefly on consciousness but not the, the physical mechanism of what we think it might be but i'd love to hear what you know about that because it's it well, is a big question for me.
0: I love cosmology. I've always been really, really into my cosmology. And, and around, I think it was around this time last year, I did um, like a, a kind of just just a lecture course at Princeton, which is like part of their kind of grad course about contemporary ways of looking at, at, at the cosmos, at the universe and trying to understand it. And it was fantastic because it really resonated with me that there was this course that was kind of strongly rejecting of the, of the Big Bang. Roger Penrose, for example, he, he's like done done amazing work to show that actually the ideas of the of the Big Bang of everything emerging from a tiny point are actually quite analogous to the. To the idea of everything starting infinitely spread out and then kind of gradually like coalescing together into more interesting details and it's this latter model that that feels like it makes a lot more sense to me combined with a kind of constant cycling so there's never a point where everything is infinitely dense in a site in a tiny point it's just that stuff kind of balloons in inwards and outwards but anyway the reason I, I won't I won't kind of go into the, the the cosmological stuff, although I'd love to. But we can talk about that another time. Around the same time that I was doing this course, I also was introduced to this guy John Lloyd, who who set up Qi, and we spent the whole conversation. We were supposed to be talking about education, but we spent the whole conversation talking about pan consciousness, the idea that there is one single consciousness that exists in the universe, and that. Everything alive is different, becomes different manifestations of it. And suddenly, for the first time, I saw this kind of overlap between the two things that I'd been learning of this infinitely distributed universe that kind of gradually coalesces into individual separate points. points. And consciousness that begins as a kind of whole consciousness mm. that then kind of coalesces into individuals that exist collapses within the universe. into reality. Exactly. And and suddenly it all, it all clicked together for me. And I thought, ah, that could be something that could make sense. Because many years ago, I, I met this amazing um, Norwegian woman called Heda. Who who was talking all about how how atoms themselves have consciousness was her belief. She studied physics and then she went. It's funny how much overlap there is with people who study physics and then go into the science of consciousness. Um, but at the time I was like, no, come on. Particles don't have consciousness, that's the stupidest thing ever. I didn't say that, but that was what I was thinking. And the more I've turned it round around in my mind, the more I've been thinking, actually, maybe it does come from those really, those really fundamental building blocks and i've started to think a lot about how we can like connect together physics with what we understand about biology because that's kind of one of my really big interests but anyway we should go back to
1: education <laughs> because that's what we're here to talk about it's a consciousness is such it's such a rabbit hole isn't it so like I, often when i have conversations with people like you about these topics you know who have, who share my kind of fascination for the the inner world of Us as people, I feel like Alice in Wonderland. I feel like I'm falling down the well. You know, does she fall down a well? I think she falls falls down a hole of some sort. Um, Into some kind of parallel universe, you know. And conversation between two people is such an interesting thing because... You have got your brain and I've got mine. You've got your experiences and I've got mine. You know, language is a way in which we communicate with each other and we're trying to break down really complex subjects and sort of hurl them through the air at each other and our ears pick, well, we're talking through a microphone, but we pick them up and our brains process those images and those words and we're interpreting all the symbols that we're, because words are symbols, right? We're interpreting all those symbols almost instantly as we communicate. And obviously bringing it back to education, as you say, it's such an art form because being a great educator is about making things simple and easy for people to understand, or at least taking complex ideas and being able to communicate them effectively. When I speak, I'm routinely worried that I'm waffling or I'm not, I'm not making the, the, the story simple. And that can be a real challenge when being an educator. So yeah, how do think, you do that?
0: Uh, well, I was just going to say in summary to what you were saying before, I think consciousness attempts to connect the separation that's inflicted upon us by the universe. But yeah, in terms of trying to make things accessible simple, accessible and simple, I think that one of the worst things about the, um, the kind of school system that we all grew up in and that we le- that's where we learn what we think education is. And that's why when I often talk to people about education, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm done with that. I don't need to go back there. But, we, you know, so much of the school system is, is about just learning things from memory I would love to get hold of the, the science syllabus in, in, in this country and just completely rewrite it because so much of it is just lists of things you're supposed to remember. And like my knowledge is very small <laughs> and I keep trying to stress this to people. Like lots of people look at me and they're like, wow, how do you, how do you know all these things? How, do you, how are you able to answer all these questions? But actually my knowledge is very small, but what I've learned to do is, is connect ideas together such that I can work things out. For example, like if you, if you take an apple and you tap it, or you, or you you rattle it and it feel, if, if you tap it and it feels kind of quite hard and and um it makes kind of a noise and if you rattle it and you can if you can hear the the seeds rattling then is it sweet or is it or is it not so sweet and i guess if you once once you understand all the pieces you're like okay well that's obviously a sweet apple because it'll have to have the sugar inside itself. it's like
1: tapping the batteries you know when you tap tap a battery if you drop it it's and it falls it's fully charged and if it doesn't fall it's empty i've never heard that before that is that what you mean so the based on the on the reaction of the object you get a different you're learning something different about the object
0: if if someone told me about that about an apple then i, I wouldn't and and they asked me like how do you tell if it's sweet or not i would I wouldn't know the answer. I haven't learned the answer. Right. But, I, but I understand how all the pieces connect together to be like, okay, well, I guess it'll have loads of sugar in it. Mm. So that means all the cells will be like full of water. And, and that means that the cells will be all like tight and big and, mm. and crispy. And that mm. means that it's going to be like, it's going to make this kind of sound. I see. Learning things should be so much more about connecting things together.
1: Mm. Learning should be an
0: adventure, right? Yes.
1: Not just sitting there like a parrot absorbing things and then repeating them back to your
0: teacher. Exactly. I think a lot of magic mixed in as well helps quite a lot like when when we're at aim high earth when we're teaching about the climate and nature crisis we often start with this thing about folding paper which i won't ruin but it, it, it really wows people and then they're suddenly ready to learn or if i was teaching about physics then like this pencil if we were to take this pencil and cool it down to minus 273 degrees celsius then cool it like a little bit more do you know what would happen to it shutter it wouldn't, well, it could shatter if we were to if we were to hammer it. But if you just kept cooling it, in theory, we can't actually can't actually cool it this this cold. But mm. if you could get it cold enough, then it would just expand to fill the whole universe and disappear. Mm. And if you tried to heat it back up again, then you you couldn't because it would it would be gone. Mm. Anyway, I think that <laughs> is like a little piece of magic before you start learning about temperature. Is like, whoa, temperature's pretty cool. It's not just like am I hot or am I cold? I
1: thought when you cool something it contracted rather than expanded
0: yeah so so well there's this there's this rule that um that we've discovered that seems to hold in all of physics where you for some reason you always have to have a tiny amount of uncertainty in something's position Mm -hmm. or in how it's moving you can't be a hundred percent certain about both of those things nobody i think quite knows why that is but it's just something that we found through repeated experiment that you can't have total certainty so if you actually manage to cool something down so cold that all of its particles, like, completely stop moving, then what's their speed? The speed is zero. And because you're 100% certain that the speed is zero, that means you need to be infinitely uncertain in the position. And mm. so it expands to fill everything. So it's kind of like a cloud
1: of... Anyway. Like Buddha everywhere and everything at once. Yeah. That's, how you, that's how you become enlightened. <laughs> you, you cool your you, pencils. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or yourself. Every.
0: Piece of coal that we burn is emissions still going up and still going into the atmosphere. So anything less than stopping immediately is still making things worse. And so these levels of ambitions are nowhere near high enough, which is why you have people like Antonio Guterres, who's obviously the the head of the UN, the most important global body on earth, saying climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals, are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. Investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. Now, of course, he's referring to to new infrastructure, but implicit in that is the ongoing extraction of, of infrastructure, is the ongoing use of infrastructure that already exists.
1: One thing I'd love to talk about a bit more is something that's plaguing a lot of us. And some say it is a, it is almost a sort of privilege to feel this. But eco-anxiety, I went to a, a conversation on the weekend about it and about how we're in, in the midst of a climate crisis and what you refer to as a nature crisis quite regularly. It's very hard to sort of see beyond the, the anxiety sometimes because everywhere we look, there's stories about the planet collapsing and biospheres breaking down. How do we help people move past the anxiety and how do we help them see you know a future where things could be better doomism spreads you know it spreads quickly it, it, it really allows people to sell more newspapers and magazines and stuff more frequently because i guess that whole car crash mentality of our species you know it's alluring to look at bad things um, and very seldom do people want to necessarily focus on good news but you know at, at aim high earth how do you how, how are you helping people sort of see beyond what feels like a very dark future for us
0: First, I'm going to answer about myself, and then I'll answer about Aim High. So, um, I'm really anxious about the climate, climate, nature crisis at the moment. I am in a very bad patch in terms of in terms of recognizing the the reality of it and how stark the situation is. In in my opinion, it's more likely than not that things will get irreparably bad. It's not not say that there isn't a small chance that things things could be different. I think for me, an important thing to recognize is that that anxiety is not an unnatural or or, or strange thing to think. I, I think it's easier for us to kind of other ourselves and think of ourselves as isolated, but actually we're all in this together and that anxiety is actually really motivating if it comes with um the the right kind of empowerment and the right kind of ability to do things. And so I actually my, my response is is very practical. I think we all need to find a way that we can try and make a positive difference and, and try and commit ourselves to it as much as we can, if we have the freedom to do so. And I know that that's something that a lot of people do not have that freedom. And those people are, are relying on those of us who do. So those of us who have that freedom and don't do anything about it, I think are, well, I, I hope that they'll change their minds. One of the worst things to to feel as a, as a human is is uncertainty, we hate uncertainty. We will do anything to try and get away from feeling uncertain, even if our answer to feeling uncertain about something is to just make up something rubbish in our mind, i.e. cognitive dissonance. Going back to that same thing we were talking about about how we kind of other other animals and, and things like that, but but this is something that we're very uncertain about. You, you mentioned doomism. I'm really worried about that being used as a tool to now try and prevent people from, from actually telling the raising truth. Raising the alarm. Yeah, this is coming right out of the fossil fuel uh, industry play, like PR playbook. The word. Uh, well, doomism maybe maybe not so much itself, but this kind of idea. So um, I, we, I've started to see these like things like
1: gaslighting. We're being gaslit by the. These industries
0: yeah so like justin Rowlett, i think is his name the the head of climate and environment at the bbc i've seen several news stories where he's been labeled as as an activist uh, we shouldn't have activists in journalism we should have true journalists but he's not being an activist he's just telling the truth in, in, a, in a place where where other people aren't, aren't doing so so to go back to the anxiety my personal view is that i i, I try and commit myself to something that i know is positive and I know that that's the best that I can do but I do re- I do regularly have to remind myself that I can only do what I can do and I still have to look after myself because quite recently I I I had I had like a point where I just was so exhausted and so burnt out that I could just barely do anything else and I think that we really have to recognize that this is incredibly stressful and that if we're going to be able to overcome it then we have to be healthy enough to do so I've learned a lot about stress I don't know if you do know if you have learned much about stress yourself but um I have. Uh, (laughs) from (laughs) uh, from our experience you know as a as a a culture we tend to differentiate between good stress and bad stress so like bad stress be like your financial worries and relationship stuff and good stress would be you know the stress that drives you at work to get the stuff done that you need that you need to do but ultimately our bodies do not differentiate at all between these kinds of stress i think that Many of us in the the climate and nature space and many outside that space who want to be inside it are feeling this constant stress of the climate and nature crisis and not really recognising how much we also need to look after ourselves in order to carry on working as hard as we need to work in in order to make the progress that needs to be made. Climate change, we all know about it. We all know it's worrying AF. Fusion is sort of like squeezing together two grapefruits in order to try to make a very hot melon. What is confidence? To which the highest scoring answer was This is, full stop, end of answer, walked out of the exam. Hi, I'm Matthew Shrivman, I studied sciences at the University of Oxford, and these are my missions. One, to make science as accessible as oxygen for the broadest possible audience. It normally goes legumes, and then root vegetables, and then fruit. The maximum horsepower of a horse is 15 horsepower. two, to ignite curiosity and inspire courageous thinking. Combustible. Combustible, you burn yes. it. Cool. Should we light it up? get it lit? Y- y- yes.
1: Yeah. Logging an area and then converting it to eucalypt which is a more faster growing
0: It's all space. eucalypt what we walk through isn't it? And three, to empower individuals to drive positive change and combat environmental destruction. In 2015, the UN announced the year, the International Year of Soils. Remember that? No. That's barely enough to absorb the last one hour of global emissions. We need a lot more trees.
1: Let's just suspend our disbelief for a second, kind of create well, somewhat of a prediction, I suppose. If we carry on at the current trajectory with all the planetary boundaries being smashed through as they are, and we fast forward to, say, 2050, what does the Earth look like?
0: Another thing we, we have to remember in this is that most of the modelling uses, well, it's, it's, it's modelled based on things that we understand. And a lot of what's going on, we, we just don't understand. And so there's a huge amount of uncertainty in which side of bad we will be.
1: But bad or catastrophic it's hard to say.
0: Okay, do you know do you know why the kelp forests are disappearing off the west coast of the United States?
1: Oceans are warming. So it's nutrient it's, runoff
0: it's not, well, the, the, those are probably factors as well, but basically the, the sea otters have been disappearing, and the sea otters eat the sea urchins, and the sea urchins, um, you know, they, they crawl around, they eat the roots of the kelp, and so they basically destroy the kelp forest, but the, the sea otters keep, have always kept them in check, but the sea otters have been disappearing. And it took a long time for people to find out what, why, why where, 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 where are all the sea otters going, and eventually we started to realise that it was because of the orcas, the killer whales were coming in starting to eat loads of them, which is very unusual. Because they're hungry. Because they're hungry. But then the question is why why are they hungry?
1: Overfishing. So <laughs> right. it's
0: but so overfishing, yes. But more so, I think the current best thinking on this mm. is that they are still making up for the reverberations of chaos that were created by the whaling industry mm. that finished Decades ago.
1: Wow.
0: Decades ago. And yet that 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 problem is still persisting as these orcas still go around like trying to catch up on the food that they haven't that they don't have that they can't get hold of. And so this is the thing that, that terrifies me is that there are all these natural processes going on that happen at some of them at tremendously long time scales, some of them maybe over only on the course of decades we don't have any idea what they are and we won't know what they are until these starts to happen. And, you know, I think all of us are crossing our fingers and hoping that there will be enough of them that will protect us rather than endanger us. But there could be many that, that could endanger us. And I think that that that's that's the scariest thing for me is that is that these projections they tend to focus on on climate and i think the most important of the the planetary boundaries are the ones that are that are more more distinctly connected to nature because those are the ones that that's what creates the stability so like on the um surface of the moon on ne- like nearest neighbor the moon the moon like could could almost be the earth it's so so close to us in terms Some of where, say it, it, was where it is a piece the of the earth at one point right yeah. yeah um so temperatures on the moon vary between 173 degrees celsius sorry minus 173 degrees celsius and positive 127 degrees celsius wow like this is the enormous stretch of temperatures that exist on that rock right next to us and the reason we don't have the, that crazy difference in temperatures is purely because we have all this nature all over the planet that is, that is creating this this mm. stable system yeah so in fact when when you arrived this was one of the things that i was i was thinking of when i was just kind of jotting down as a way to try to explain this to people is that I think there's quite a lot of conservatism built into a lot of us. We like the idea that things should stay the same. And I think that that makes sense to an extent. But when it gets to the point where people think that that staying the same is just like keeping everything completely still, that's not really how nature works. Nature works by being a constant dynamic moving system like I was talking about before. So it's like the difference between a horse trying to balance a plank on a horse that's moving along versus trying to balance a human on a horse. Obviously, the human can balance more easily because they can like move around and adjust themselves. And so... Nature is similar to the human on the horse instead of the plank on the horse in that as things change, it can adjust to try and keep everything stable.
1: And- but it needs time to be able to create the adjustment. But our exactly. civilization has, is causing such severe changes in such sh- short amounts of time. Nature can't move because nature is a bit like a, a an inter, intercontinental ship, right? It takes a long time for it to turn around and change because there's been millennia of of uh, of, of time, epochs have passed to get planet earth to the point it is today you know humankind has upset the balance so essential to life on this planet and that's the the key word for me is balance we live in the goldilocks zone of our solar system and that's given our planet the opportunity to flourish like a garden in the way it is today but we as a species and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast and i'm sorry to keep going on about it but i genuinely believe human beings have evolved to become a parasitic species that we are behaving like an invasive parasitic species. We're just like aphids that have landed in a garden and are eviscerating the entire garden. It's a sobering reality when you realize that. And and I don't want people to get ideas into the head that misanthropy and human hating is is the the order of the game because it's not what I want people to do. I want us to acknowledge our destructive nature. We have that within us. Like, you know, in, in Hindu cosmology, there's Shiva, which is a creator and a destroyer. And, you know, to go down the sort of, you know, spiritual uh, rabbit hole again, I do believe that each human being and, all, and our species en masse embodies Shiva, the creator and the destroyer simultaneously. Because I know that we have the potential to be a part of a symbiotic relationship with our environment and not a parasitic one. But we as a species have moved into a phase where we are warming the planet to the extent that we are changing everything on it. Kind of forgetting that we're a bit like a caterpillar at the top of the tree you know munching away at the leaf not realizing that you know it's a long way down and you might not survive kind of mindlessly and I, and I think again this goes back to our whole reason this conversation what we both do is about education helping people realize their potential as a species we don't have to be the destroyers we have a choice those who can choose have a choice you know through the privilege and through opportunity. Is so important to me in helping people realize that we all have the power to be a part of shifting our species and shifting our planet in in the right direction. But what concerns me, Matthew, is that not enough people are aware of what is coming. Seven billion plus people, maybe maybe more, have no idea that the climate crisis is going to cause so much havoc, or even in the nature crisis as well. You know, the species extinction and the loss of habitat. You it's know, all the same. It's all the same. Yeah. It's all interconnected, but there's so many of us on this planet and we're, And sometimes it feels so hard to reach people. You know, how do we, is it ever going to be possible? Are we ever going to be able to help our species collectively realise what we're actually doing with every meal, with every purchase, with every aeroplane trip, you know? Do you think that's ever going to happen?
0: Nate Higgins, who's one of the people at, at um, Consilience, the Consilience Project, he talks about how people tend to believe that the world is structured in such a way that you have the people and then you have the system and then on top of that you have the leaders. He talks about how we have now invented a system that is such that we have the people and then we have the leaders and then we have the system on the top and we're now at a point where the leaders are essentially serving this system that we have created and the system is is like a, like a super organism. It's something that has a mind of its own and And behaves in a way that is essentially according to our design, but has essentially like evolved its own new kinds of behaviors and I think that to change that system, the only way that that can be really be done on the scale required is if enough people really understand and this is why it's so infuriating and and exasperating for for us that it's so. It's so hard to get support for educational projects, even though, you know, the, the our old. Our future depends on it. Our, our future entirely depends on it. That H.G. Wells quote is, you know, civilization is in a constant race between education and, and catastrophe. And it's, and it's true. And yet, we still seem to have this in our minds that we, we'll just be able to fix this by retaining the same system and, and investing in carbon the capture hell is and wrong storage with us? technology. <laughs> Whereas we need to completely rethink the system, and that's why I'm so fascinated by these thinkers who, who are who are coming up with new ideas that are actually seem practical and interesting. And I'm not necessarily sure if they'll work, but like Yannis um, Varoufakis, his idea to 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 retain markets but maybe uh, end uh, private ownership of companies, so that we can still have a marketplace for goods and services that we can still have, you know, that system that we know works. But anyway, not going into that too much, but. Um, one of the things that that greatly frustrates me as well is that William Nordhaus, do you know the economist? So I don't think we talked about about this last time. He he's a Nobel Prize winner now for, for economics. Um, but several decades ago, he he created this uh, this thing called DICE, the Dynamic Integrated Climate and Economic Model. And the idea was that it basically like balances up potential economic gains versus the potential costs or losses of of trying to solve the climate crisis. This model has been incredibly influential in the way that it shaped politics because it's been used repeatedly for people to try and weigh up decisions, but it's been debunked repeatedly by top climate scientists. And now, finally, it's started to be adapted by the the Potsdam Institute and have, have stepped in and are trying to sort it out. But it's been used to kind of justify this idea of, let's just carry on and then we'll get wealthy enough that we can then exactly. solve it later. Now, obviously this is really bad because the model was terrible and so things are getting worse a lot faster than the model ever predicted. But the other thing that really frustrates me is that we're now at that point where we have all this all this wealth and we've been pouring it into essentially, you know, quantitative easing that's essentially been supporting the stock market rather than supporting the projects that we actually need to overcome this this ginormous problem, um, if, again, returning to Nate Higgins, just because he, he's in my mind, um, he talks about the carbon pulse, this idea that we, we, it may be a long time before we get this same pulse of energy again. And our economy, you know, people don't realise how much our economy is actually an economy of energy, not really of money. And he talks about how, you know, this is our chance, this is our moment where we've got all this energy to solve all these problems that we're creating by using all the energy. So we should be solving them right now. But ultimately, yeah, as, as you can see, we're still not diverting our wealth on a kind of world war mobilisation scale towards solving this problem. And I don't think that will happen until there is enough understanding at the top. And the, the work that we do at Aim High Earth, you know, where we're interacting with politicians, for example, it's still very clear to me that whilst some politicians might have very good in-depth understanding of certain things, their consilience, I guess is the right word, their, their connecting together of all the ideas such that they can make really good strategic decisions just, just does not exist. And I think that's a great deal of fault with our society in general, is that you know the people who tend to get to the top of our organisations tend to be people who are specific experts in certain areas. And our, our, our organisations tend to filter out the... The generalists, the the creatives, who who actually should be the ones at the top because they're the ones who can really synthesize everything together and make the really intelligent choices that we need to 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 lead our way into a to a future that that might be
1: livable and therefore good. <laughs> I think the key word there is leadership. We're going to only see change in this world if we have leaders, political will, and and the desire to see real change because we seem to be in a world in most parts of the of the, of the planet where politicians seem either ambivalent, oblivious, downright ignorant or just completely against the idea of bringing, you know, a green economy or plant-based economy or whatever because they they the short terminism is so ingrained within their psyche or their consciousness. They cannot see a possible future without doing things the way we do it today. They're sort of beholden to business and corporations. You know, part of me sort of feels like sometimes we need to see a total collapse before we can rebuild uh, our society. That being said, you know, with after world wars, where we did see total collapse of cultures in many ways, we just, from the ashes, just rebuilt everything in exactly the same way it was before. The economic model, the education model, the the, the health model, everything has been done in, in somewhat the same way. I mean, obviously, there've been improvements in many ways. There's lots of things that have been improved and things that have changed, but I think that humankind needs to, to really rewrite the script in every single part of our lives, and whether it's energy production, whether it's transport, I'm a huge fan of, and I know he was a bit of a dreamer, but Jacques Fresco of the v, of the uh, the Venus Project, his work. You familiar with his work? I think we may have touched on it roughly last time, maybe.
0: Uh, it's to do with like resource based. Yeah, resource based economy, right? economy, a
1: circular yeah. economy that you know to to live in symbiosis with the natural world is to take, but also to return. You know, landfills shouldn't exist. That this sort of wasteful model that we exist as a species, it's it's irrational. It's a sort of madness. That we just consume and consume and consume. Someone said to me yesterday, "There are enough T-shirts in the world to last seven generations. We, even if we stop making T-shirts right now, we still have seven generations more T-shirts to to clothe every single man, woman, and child on the planet, because so much is being made." And because of the way we exist as a species, this whole idea of everything has to be perfect, so much of it is thrown away. 85% of stuff that's produced is ends up being thrown away. And that goes not just for our f- clothing, but also our food as well. Um, a lot of technology is routinely thrown away. So one of my kind of main reasons really over the next f- few months and years is really to sort of push, a, you know, a, a dramatic reduction in consumption, not just you know of animal products because uh, you know i believe that every fiber of my being animal agriculture has got to end we've got to stop farming and living in the way we live with with food but also physical production of clothing we don't need to have as much as we have and this sort of capitalist model of buy more buy more buy more you know it it's it's unhealthy and it's unsustainable but human beings like things we love shiny objects and that is in in a way the, the sort of capitalist monster has hacked our brains and used our own evolutionary our
0: yearning to belong has yeah, been hijacked used it against the time.
1: us yeah. to to make us want to continuously buy and consume and it's a feedback loop you know i love what you said earlier about how you learn all these things and you you start to see the patterns between them i very much feel the same way i learn about one subject and another and i see these interconnected mycelial connections between all these interconnected realities and I almost sort of sometimes feel i visualize and i can i can i can feel the sort of connections between things you know words can be it can be difficult sometimes to find the words to 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 articulate those connections, but this is where being an educator and I think being someone who likes to learn comes in. I think it's important for people to learn and read and, and absorb information and not sit in a static way. And whatever's coming in the future, and of course, I I believe and I know you agree, it doesn't look good currently, but we are a resourceful species, and you know we obviously can't be all doom and gloom. There has to be solutions. Like you know, you've been obviously involved in in this work for quite a while now if you can just give us some hope please because there's obviously a lot of negativity you know out there a lot of bad things happening to our planet but there are people out there aren't there and organizations out there that are working tirelessly every day to to reverse damage whether it's planting mangroves like the eden eden tree planting project or you know the eden project itself here in the uk we're doing incredible work for conservation what have you seen out there that that gives us some glimmer of hope that there there is some semblance of uh, (laughs) a reduction, at least, or mitigation of what's coming. Some of these things, I I, I think,
0: can be fixed with quite simple changes. You know, you you were talking about the the short-termism of of governance. You know, Wales is the only country in the world that has a law such that it must consider future generations in all of its lawmaking. Already, we can see the impacts of that coming through. They've decided that they won't build any more roads, you know, as the German saying goes, if you sow roads then you harvest traffic and that for me you know that that's a really positive step i think so much can be changed with quite simple changes in the law like the enshrining of ecocide you know the 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 wanton large-scale destruction of, of of nature in the pursuit of profit you know if that if that did become illegal at the international criminal court as the as the international campaign is is trying to achieve that would be enormous in terms of how much it would very rapidly change things for the better the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty—another legal change—that that quite simple change could very rapidly cha- change the game. The thing is, is that you know these these legal changes often run up against where's the mandate? Like, do people want this enough? And so, ultimately, if if you share the view that I do, which is that we really are into like a very terrible situation now where it's not going to be enough for us to just kind of try and look after nature and try and do bits of adaptation and that we really need very radical change, then the only logical route to get there is to educate enough people so that people fully understand and fully bought in and aren't just educated in a way where they know stuff but but are educated in such a way that they that they internalize the stories and live by them we need not just a whole new generation of people who who think with with nature first in every single decision every decision they ask yes but what's the impact on nature we don't just need that in new generations coming through we need to somehow retrofit that into the people who are already in power and that that's the great challenge is that we somehow need to do that fast enough to create create the positive changes, and it's notoriously difficult to educate people with these kinds of ideas when they're already older. But that that's kind of the challenge that that we are taking on, and I can't really see another way that this can be done because I know you mentioned collapse. Like a lot of people, I think are, are yearning for collapse somehow because they're like, it can't go on like this. There's got to be a way out, and 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 the simple solution is is a collapse. But we are now in a world where everything is so carefully optimized and so carefully crafted to to be like everything is kind of like last minute fulfillment, last minute delivery, sorry, just in time delivery. Supermarkets only just have enough stock for the people who are are going to come in and, and barely anything more. Everything is so kind of tightly wound up that even a small break in the system is really devastating and we're seeing that already with uh, with shipping problems that are the hangovers from 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 covid and 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 the war that's going on in the ukraine and so what i'm saying is that a, a collapse would be so disastrous it would be so disastrous and so what we really need to somehow achieve is a major bend in the way that the, the in the way that our system operates, and again, the only way that that can really be achieved is, is is through policy changes and legal changes through the structures that exist, such that we can radically change the system using the system itself. And I I really strongly believe that that can happen. I don't necessarily believe that it will happen without violence. I think there might be violence. I think that probably the longer this takes to solve, the more likely there is to be violence. I don't see myself as someone who will be involved in, in violence to try and push for this, but I see it coming. And I really think that that's something that people in power need to be reminded of, is that this will not stay peaceful for long if they continue to not act. You know, organizations-
1: because people are gonna suffer.
0: Because people Every will people start will to get increasingly angry. Mm-hmm. Organizations like uh, Extinction Rebellion, which, you know, are put down as like almost eco-terrorists, I think they were listed as at one stage, you know, they are very tame compared to what is coming if, if more isn't done. And I think that our leaders really need to properly understand that. And that's a message that, that we're trying to get through to them, that, that they have to act or, they're going, or, or they're, going to, they're going to create a very unpleasant world. I think that it's, it, it's, it's strange. It, it's what happens in, in any human system is that we could end up in a point of collapse. But equally, there are so many people who are working really hard on trying to bend things in the right direction and trying to influence the right people so that things can move that I think we have a chance. But I, I really, really think that this world is still seriously underfunded and under-supported. It's, it's human nature that we keep diverting funds into things like the, the war in Ukraine, of course, and COVID, of course, because these things are immediate and they are big problems. But we must start treating this as the biggest problem and we must start supporting it as if the people who are working in this space are working on the biggest problem of, of, that humanity's ever faced.
1: Mr. Matthew Shribman, thank you for joining me on the PBN podcast. What a fascinating conversation. I could have probably talked to you for another hour. But it was really great
0: yeah i really enjoyed it i sorry so many thoughts i feel like we didn't go through many of the questions i, I actually didn't but you
1: know i just went with it and you know it's, it's really fascinating and we yeah we could i definitely want to keep talking and chatting to you because there's obviously so much to discuss let's do um, this again sometime i know uh, <laughs> yes as they say <laughs> thank you for joining us everyone i've been your host robbie lockie and this is the pbn podcast we'll back next week with more food fashion animals technology consciousness and everything in between